Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Ephesians. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. That's on page 1899. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong place. It's on page 1818 in the Pew Bibles, if you have one of the Pew Bibles, page 1818. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, let us listen to this word the Lord speaks to us. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved." And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast." For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Notice that summary verse, verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. May the Lord bless this reading and our hearing of His Word this morning. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you read the bulletin, maybe you don't. Church secretaries tell me that people invariably have not paid attention to the bulletin. Well, if you've looked at the bulletin, you'll notice the theme of the sermon this morning sounds a bit odd. We are God's poems. Well, I've played and taken a little liberty with the word that Paul uses at the beginning of verse 10 which is quite literally the word poema. Now, it's not being used by the Apostle Paul the way we use the word poem. I think when I was in school, if there was anything I disliked more, I can't think of it, than having to try to write a poem. I'm no poet. I'm told that Gerhardus Voss, when he finished teaching theology, went off into the sunset and decided to no longer do theology but to write poems. I can assure you I'm not going to do that in my retirement. I'll find something else, maybe plant flowers. But in all seriousness, brothers and sisters, this is your identity, says the Apostle Paul. You are a sinner once upon a time when God first found you dead and as dead as dead can be without hope and without God in the world, under His wrath, subject to the tyranny of the devil, doing the things that suited your fancy and that accorded with 
that Adamic fallen nature that, to which you had fallen an heir in Adam. The thing that you could say about you, about me, was it's hopeless. And yet God, and that's the big point of this passage throughout, God has done something entirely and only by grace. You contributed not a whit to it, not a thing. But out of His rich mercy is amazing, surpassing grace and kindness toward you in Christ Jesus. He's gone on a rescue operation, and He has brought you out and up and made you sit with Christ in the heavenlies, and He's got a wonderful plan for your life that from henceforth, as you go down life's pathway, you will be a new creation, a trophy, a demonstration before the world of God's gracious handiwork, a marvelous display of His incomparable grace in your life. It's one of those kind of passages, Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, that I think Calvin somewhere captures perhaps as well or better than any other passage in the Word of God, if we may speak in that fashion, the reality of God's grace toward us in Christ Jesus in terms of all that it means. Now, your pastor's probably heard me say this at some point or another, but you haven't, perhaps, so I'll say it to you. To understand this passage, you have to know a little gospel grammar. And the gospel grammar of which I speak, it's very evident in the way Paul structures even this epistle in its entirety. If you were reading it in the original language, you'd discover that what the grammarians call the indicative mood dominates. And you say, say what, pastor, indicative mood? It's been a long time since I was in grade school and we were doing grammar. What's the indicative mood? Well... It's the mood that doesn't express what you might desire, wish were the case, or what you might think is possible, but whether or not it's actual remains to be seen. It's the mood that describes what actually is the case. A very simple way of illustrating that would be Illustrating that would be to say, uh, I am a professor. That's an indicative. It declares in the present tense that I am called to teach, prepare students for the gospel ministry. It's a statement of not what I would aspire to be. I didn't really aspire to be a professor. I wanted to be a pastor. But they Three times over, asked me to come, and I thought, well, three strikes and you're out, I better go uh, and see whether I like it. But with the suitcase not entirely unpacked, hoping to get a call to go elsewhere, because that was my first love. Well, if you're a professor or a teacher or a mother or a father, if that's actually your reality, then the description of your reality is in the indicative mood. It's not what you aspire to be. It's not what you hope to be. It's what you are. 
Now, there's another mood that predominates in Paul's epistle. The first three chapters, you'll scarcely find a single verb that isn't describing what is actual because God has done it. This is who you are because of what God has done. And that's where we're at this morning. This evening, our passage will be taken from later in the book, and there a different mood dominates, and it's the imperative mood. Now, you remember what the imperative mood is, right? It's that mood that says, do something. Not, this is who you are, but this is what you should do if that's who you are. So, back to my professor illustration. If you're a professor, then teach. Don't spend your days at the pond fishing, but get to the classroom and teach. If you're a mother, care for your children. If you're a farmer, till the soil, plant the seed. Do what accords with your reality. And that's the way Paul organizes his letter to the Ephesians. We're in that place where he's offering in a broad panoramic manner what God has done to make you who you are. And then he's going to spend a lot of time in chapters 4, 5, and 6 using the transitional expression, therefore, this is what you ought to do. Now, there's another thing that's interesting about our passage, and it's this. You would probably think that the Apostle Paul would wait to describe the life that you live in the power of the Spirit and whatever good works, however few or feeble they may be, as belonging to the imperative. God has saved you, now you've got to do something. And there are a lot of people who fall into the trap of saying, well, we made a good beginning by grace, but falls to me now to add something to what God has done. Paul says something remarkable in our passage this morning. He says even the good works that you do in Christ, by the Spirit with whom you are sealed, even what you do is caught up within the gospel indicative. It too represents that you are God's poems, God's handiwork, God's workmanship, a masterpiece of His gracious artistry in your life. Now, that was a little longer introduction than I intended, so let me get to the main thing here. There are two things Paul says in terms of what God has done, why we are become His workmanship, and what that means, that reality of the work of His grace in our lives. The first is, though once dead, you've been made alive, and it's all of grace. That's where he starts in the first two, call them stanzas of this three-part song, which is Ephesians 2, 1 to 10. We'll look at that and look at it as quickly as we are able. And then secondly, he says, though you were once dead, now made alive, and that by God's grace and grace alone, not by works, so you have nothing in which to boast except in the God of your salvation. God has also destined you and intends for your life 
that you should walk in those good works which he prepared beforehand for you to walk in them. Actually, the passage is very interesting. It starts out describing dead men walking. And it's not a really pretty, very pretty picture as we're going to see in a moment. And then he ends with alive persons in Christ walking. And their walks are very different. Their pathways are radically contrasted. The first thing, you were once, past tense, description of what was the case, dead in trespasses and sins. And he says that very powerfully, and as one commentator put it, says it in a way that you could say, this is one of the ten things they don't say much about these days in church. It's too negative. Starts out on a bleak, dark note, a little bit like a portrait that is taken in a studio where if your lovely face is to be most prominent, they don't want anything in the background that would distract from your beauty. So it's black or it doesn't call attention to itself. Well, in a manner of speaking, your portrait of what you've become by God's grace has as its backdrop this. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the Spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, that's pretty bleak. Paul doesn't say that sinners, when God finds them in His grace through Christ, were on life support or like a fire whose embers are still kindled. It's about to go out, but there's a spark of life remaining that we can fan into flame if we just blow upon it. Now, you were not on life support. Spiritually speaking, I think John Gerstner, a theologian of an earlier generation, was right when he used the analogy. The best analogy for what Paul is describing is that you were spiritually like a zombie. Zombies are strange creatures. They walk and they talk and they do all kind of things, most of them not very pleasant and very uh, endearing. They have a form of existence, but they're actually the walking dead. That's what was true of you before God in His grace took hold of you at whatever point and in whatever way he took hold of you. It was out of the depths of this kind of reality, sold under sin, in bondage to sin, a rebel against God, unworthy and undeserving of His favor, however altogether worthy, justly deserving, that you should be the object of His displeasure. Elsewhere, Paul says in Ephesians, you are without God. 
Now, he's writing this letter to a Gentile congregation, predominantly Greek or Roman by background. And he says more than once, and if you're sitting in the pew thinking, well, that's not me. That's not where my story starts as it relates to God's grace. I can't remember ever being the kind of person, Paul, you're, you're talking about here. Paul says, uh, he doesn't speak southern, so he doesn't say y'all. But he does say, you all, no wiggle room, no exceptions. And I suppose if I were to press the point rather directly and personally, do you recognize this? This is your story. This is where I once was if I'm now in Christ. My circumstance was completely hopeless. I couldn't lend myself a hand or climb up by dint of my own efforts to find my way back to God. I think it's R.C. Sproul who used to have his class when he was instructing, teaching them. That's probably why he has a reputation as a masterful teacher. He actually had them do a little play acting. One of the students would be called out and said, you play the role of a dead corpse. And then the remainder of the class will spend whatever energy and by whatever strategy or means they'll try to awaken you from your, your grave. And if the fellow playing the dead corpse played his role properly... No number of inducements, no enticements. You could yell as loudly as you want or whisper as gently as you could. It's making no impact whatsoever. That, says the Apostle Paul, is, is what was true of us before God took hold of us. And then at verse 4, you get this amazing transition. Now, you know you're getting old as a preacher when you use the same analogy as you've used before. But, notice the but at the beginning of verse 4. But because of His great love for us, God. And there we have the one upon whom Paul wants you to fix your eye. Not you, but the God of and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the God of your salvation, but God, though you were dead in trespasses and sins, because of His great love, not just any kind of love, but a big love, an extraordinary love, but God, because of His great love for us, who is rich in mercy. And you run down a few verses, he'll talk about the God whose grace toward us was an incomparable riches of his grace. And sorry about the grammar, but the Apostle Paul is very artistic in a manner of speaking, clever in his use of words. As one commentator puts it, God explodes literally upon the scene. Paul uses three P adjectives. And P is 
Here's your word genius of the day term. It's a plosive. It's where we get the word. What happens when something explodes? It goes, boom! Did you notice? I opened my mouth and breathed out. Plosives are consonants. And Paul uses three plosive consonants. Great love, rich mercy, and incomparable riches of his kindness. He's in a manner of speaking verbally representing an explosion in the graveyard of your dead in trespasses and sin. God came upon the scene and in Christ took people otherwise dead and he made them alive. He lifted them up and out of the grave. He set them upon a high mountain. He gave you your identity in Christ such that you are in Him, seated in the heavenlies. Paul wants you to say with him, it is by grace, therefore, and grace alone that I've been saved. It's not just a theological affirmation about which we can argue. That's the story of who you are. Who am I? A sinner, saved only by a great love, a rich mercy, a surpassing. I don't know if you children still play the game we used to when I was a child. We eeny, eeny, over or something. I can't quite remember what it was. You'd throw this ball over the house and they'd catch it on the other side. Most of the time, if you were a little guy, you couldn't get it over. Well, the word Paul uses translated here, surpassing, is like that. He throws it more than over. It's beyond your and my reach what God does. He does the impossible with man. Most things are impossible, but with God, it's possible. And that's your story. It's possible, not just possible. It's the indicative. It's reality. God's done it. I remember as a little boy, I was in a church in New Zealand, and there was an elderly woman who had come to know the Lord. And she was making profession of faith and to be baptized. And my father said, is there a song you would like us to sing? And I forget the exact words, but it had that expression in it, out of the miry clay. This is my story. This is my song. Praising my Savior all the day long. He found me. He made me to live. He has granted to me out of his rich mercy, great love, and incomparable riches of grace. I am a sinner saved by grace, not by works, who has no boast in the presence of anyone. By the way, this is a very comforting thought when you consider and contemplate persons who are still outside of Christ. You can never say of such a person, they're too far gone. They're beyond God's reach. Even God can't do it. So why bother? 
You just have to look at yourself in the mirror of God's Word and say, well, if He can save me. Paul does that in Timothy, the great apostle Paul of all people. You'd say, I can't hold a candle to Paul. He's far beyond anything I've ever done. And yet, what does he say? Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I know myself to be which kind of sinner? The foremost. One untimely born. A persecutor of the church. An enemy of Christ and of his people. And yet, by grace, this grace that's been given to me, I am become an apostle of Christ Jesus. But now notice the last thing there to which we come, and it's this. If all this is true, we are God's workmanship. It's said that friends of Michelangelo, if you've ever seen his David, was working in his studio on another sculpture, and it was an ugly piece of rock. They said, what are you doing chipping away at that piece of rock? Oh, he says, I'm liberating an angel. I see here an angel. I'm going to liberate him from this ugly piece of rock. Well, that word workmanship, all the commentators are all over the place with it. They don't quite know how to capture it. But it it could be rendered handiwork. Literally, that's what it is. A poem is something God has made. And this is who you are. You are before the world a display of the reach and power of God's grace. You know, parents, when they look into the eyes and cradle a newborn child, if that child is well-born, there's a kind of, it's almost mysterious. Among other things, you'll probably say, how could anyone see a child like this and not believe in a Creator? I've seen billboards to that effect. Image bearer of God. And you look at that child and you marvel. Well, that's what Paul wants to say to the church in Ephesus and to us. Don't look at yourself outside of Christ. See yourself in Christ. And recognize the reality of what God has done and is doing. And He's not only saved you and put you in high places in union with Christ, but He has a purpose for your life. He destined, created you. It's the right word. He called you into life by His gracious word in Christ so that you might do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's interesting that He puts it that way, prepared in advance. Doesn't that a redundancy? If He did it in advance, He prepared it. Well, he doesn't want you to have any illusions about your life as a Christian. He wants you to know that by the work of Christ's Spirit, whatever works you do from true faith, that's a good work, to God's glory and according to the holy standard of His law, that's God writing in script the story that He has in mind for you. He's not finished. He wants you throughout this life, even if the steps be small and the way often crooked, and a few detours along the course and a few falls and stumbles along the way, He wants you to begin to live like a new creature in Christ Jesus. 
so that you can be an exhibit. That's a theme in the book of Ephesians as well. That the incomparable riches of God's grace may be declared and known by those who recognize it in the kind of life that you live. Not a perfect life. Not a life that is an occasion for boasting because it's all God's doing. But a life that bespeaks the way in which He's taking you to your destiny. And what is your destiny, brothers and sisters? You will someday be like Him. John the Apostle says that we shall be like Him, for we will see Him as He is, and be in His presence without fear. So that the story of God's grace in your life that is being told now has a telos, an end. The last chapter, which has no end, is when your life will be nothing but a life conformed to the image of Jesus Christ with which God is altogether pleased and in which you know what it is to delight in Him even as He delights in you. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to what end? To do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Is that the story of what is the reality of your life as a Christian? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, remind us, always keep before us that we are what we are by grace, that when you found us, we were beyond hope left to ourselves. And yet you've given us hope You've given us new life. You've rescued us from the darkness. You have given to us in Christ freedom from being subject to your wrath. And you call us and prepare for us to walk in good works until someday our lives will be perfected and glorified and we will be everything that you intend for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's sing, congregation, as our response.